0: In February of 1959, nine experienced backcountry ski-tourers died in the Ural mountains of central Russia. Rescuers recovered every body, along with cameras, journals, and the other personal effects of the victims. Medical examiners were able to catalog the many wounds to the bodies that caused the deaths. However, None of this has helped answer the questions, what caused the injuries? Why were some of the bodies wearing the wrong clothes? And what could cause experienced wilderness skiers to cut their tent open from the inside and flee barefoot into the snowy darkness? You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, Episode 16, The Dyatlov Pass Incident. This episode is part of a larger series about unsolved crimes, mysteries, and phenomena. So if you like riddles, check out our other episodes about unsolved mysteries. Hello. Hey, Tyler. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. I, um... Just finished the last lecture in my series about the Middle Ages oh, on nice. my headphones and I'm very sad to see that that's over.
0: <laughs> um, are we going to get another episode on that anytime soon?
1: I hope we are. Yeah, huh? I think okay, we cool. will. I think there's a couple things we haven't touched on yet. But in the meantime, <laughs> we're going to start a new series.
0: That's right. Um, I haven't determined to name all the names I've come up with are pretty dorky, but you can kind of tell if you listened to the Voynich manuscript episode. I really like um, mysteries. I like things that don't make sense or that we can't quite offer a good explanation for. And so I have, I, we've decided to kind of do a series of of episodes on that. So things that no one can really explain how it happened, why it happened. Um, These things range from crimes, to natural disasters to things like the Voynich manuscript that we just really don't know why this thing is the way it is. And so today's episode is going to be kind of our first official dip of the toe into that pond.
1: Yes, and I'm really excited about this because I I find that those Wikipedia pages in particular are some of the most engrossing reads.
0: I, like you I just didn't... sit
1: there and you're like, "What is going on? Like did you know about this?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I completely agree. And this is really, um, I think I said this on the, um, Voynich manuscript, um, episode as well, but this, um, this type of Wikipedia page is really what kind of made me like a Wikipedia sommelier. Like people, i talk to someone, yes. I'm like, if you think that's interesting, have you ever read about it?
1: <laughs> Yeah. You can almost give recommendations. Oh, I love that. Wikipedia yeah. sommelier. <laughs>
0: That's exactly right. I feel like that. Yeah, that's, um, that's one of my callings. And so, um, yeah, today we're talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. And for probably the last five to seven years of my life, I was capable of doing what we're about to do, which is sitting to sit down and talk for an hour about this topic. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I think it's really, really fascinating. So I'm excited to jump in. Um, but before we do that, I have a getting to know your question.
1: Okay. Let's hear it.
0: This, um, came out of a conversation I had with my wife, um, this week. So what is something that you as a child, um, thought was like when you were a kid, what did you think made somebody rich? Does that make sense? Like if you went to somebody's house, you'd be like, whoa, buddy, this is a rich family.
1: Like if they had a a possession at the house.
0: A possession or just like. Any anything? What what would have made you be like? Oh, we're we're dealing with a rich family
1: now. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Let me think about this. Um, well, what comes to mind immediately? I'll say like before anything else. This is kind of a funny one. I always thought it was those kids who drove around those little made for children jeeps, <laughs> 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 like a Barbie Jeep or like a yeah. a little Hummer. You know? Oh, Yeah i i never had one of those and i was like that is so cool obviously i was you know like four or five years old at the time yeah uh so i would say that maybe as i got older i started to think trampoline was a big one Mm -hmm. you know if you had a trampoline uh those are that's what comes to mind immediately
0: i definitely feel you on the car one that that's that strikes a chord with me for sure Um, the funny one that I, this is why my wife and I were talking about this. We were kind of talking about the houses in our neighborhood. And one of the things for me that did it was stairs. If your house had stairs, I was convinced you were a millionaire. And that's because the, just this little tiny town in Arizona that I grew up in, it's all ranch style houses. Oh, okay. Like, I think you could probably count there, there might be 10 houses in my town of like 7,000 people that are two stories.
1: Wow, okay.
0: They're just, and that's just, you know, kind of, it's first of all, it's just kind of rural. That's not, there's not a lot of huge houses. And even the houses that are large, um, it just, everyone built ranch style houses for whatever reason. They were just not two story houses. So on TV, I'd see, you know, someone have stairs and I'm like, ah, the millionaires. I see. <laughs> Let's see how they live. <laughs> I
1: see how it is. Yeah. That's funny because I think in Virginia, I would say it's almost like a given that you're going to have a house with stairs. You know, they've got the colonial style. Yeah. What's uncommon in Virginia is basements. I didn't Mm -hmm. see as many of those, not the way, uh, whereas like Utah, I felt like Utah houses, if they were only one story, they always had a basement underneath. Right. And I I always wondered if that was a weather thing, if it was just easier to cool off underground.
0: Maybe. So I also think that like, I know that, like in the south basements are fairly uncommon because it's just so moist and the flooding, is wet and it's just a more humid environment and Virginia probably in some um ways is probably along those lines too like I think it suffers
1: from that yeah
0: yeah I mean DC was built on a like literally on a swamp so yeah (laughs) you run into those issues whereas Utah it's just dry sandy it's dry
1: yeah 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 Oh, I love that question, though. I'm going to keep thinking about that.
0: Yeah, it's fun. I also felt like um, if you, there's a certain amount of times you could order pizza, like in a month, and then you got into rich kid status. Because we had, I don't know what it oh, was, but we, went, yeah. we had like a special like, oh, it's pizza night. We're going to do like a special pizza night. And so, <laughs> yeah, pizza night could could get you there, too. And now, if you had pizza night in a two-story house, I mean, forget about it.
1: Unbelievable. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> Billionaire at status.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so let's jump in and discuss um, the Dyatlov Pass incident. And to, to offer a quick summary, this is basically a, um, a tragic tale of nine people who died. And the, um, the interesting part about it is there's really a lot of questions about how they died, um, we're not exactly sure when they died, and it's for kind of like with the Voynich manuscript. For every time you think you have an answer to the question, there's some annoying little fact that pops up. So, um, and one thing I was thinking about as I was researching this is, um, if you get on Google Maps to try and find Dyatlov Pass, um, you won't find it. That's not the actual name of it. It's kind of been given the name um, Dyatlov Pass. And I was thinking there's multiple ways to get like a place or a a location named after you. And this is not the way that you want to have.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Just a little foreshadowing about how this goes down. (laughs) Um, Like if there's a, if, if there's ever a Tyler Moore mountain one day, we hope it's because you, you know, created world peace on top of it not because something else.
1: i i would maybe say i hope it's for any other reason <laughs> than, than this one <laughs> this kind of reason yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> i i think i agree um but the name dyatlov comes from kind of the leader of this group of 10 people um igor dyatlov i have the other names here i won't um burden anyone with my attempts at, at pronunciation um But these, um, so this was in 1959, so uh, 62 years ago, almost um, to the week. If we had recorded this episode last week, um, we could have published it if we were forward thinking, we could have published it on the day that, um, it is assumed that these people lost their oh, wow, yeah, so 62 years ago in February. Um, very cold, by
1: the way, that makes me (laughs) realize like this was winter time
0: definitely winter time um although and we'll talk about this a little more but although it's on the kind of tail end of winter um it's, oh, yeah. it's not warming up yet or anything but it's not um you know it's not um, not the november. dead of winter yeah forever. it's not november at the beginning december kind of in the middle um <clears throat> early early february it was kind of the tail end and so and um each of these people Um, They were most of whom were all um, students with Igor Dyatlov at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, which was a university um, in that area. And each, and this is very important, I think, was an experienced grade two hiker with ski tour experience. And upon finishing this trip, they would have gotten their grade three certification, which at the time was the highest certification you could get in the Soviet Union. So Mm. these people were Basically, experts at um, doing what they um, were going to do, which was to ski, and more specifically, they were ski touring, which is not something that I'm super familiar with, and I think is more common in this part of the world, like in the um, in the um, what's the word I'm looking for, in kind of the Scandinavian countries where. Um, you know, skiing originated as far as, as I understand it. Um, So ski touring is basically like a really intense mix between cross country skiing, downhill skiing and camping. So it's um, you, you're typically spending the night, you're going on kind of long drawn out, you know, 20, 30, 40 mile trips, and you have your gear with you, you set up camp and you sleep. And so very, very grueling. um, And honestly sounds pretty fun if you were in that kind of shape and you could go back into these, you know, wintry, beautiful mountains and, and do your thing. Um,
1: so that's really kind cool... of a beautiful fusion of like different, you know, uh, different forms of getting into nature and it's all in one. Yeah. It's very cool.
0: Very cool. And, and like I said, very, very rigorous. So these people, um, yeah. Yeah. Had to had to kind of know what they were um, up to because particularly because they're headed into a very remote area And um, the area itself was actually, um, it's about a thousand kilometers northeast of Moscow, which Moscow's already kind of in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) There's not a lot of things super close to Moscow. So this is well, it's very far away from Moscow. Um, And the mountain they were going to, which you can look up on um, Google maps, is called um, Otorten, O-T-O-R-T-E-N. And, um, it's way the heck up in the middle of nowhere in the Ural mountains, which is kind of central Russia. And to put it in slight perspective, cause Russia is so massive, um, it's further North than Helsinki, Finland. So really pretty far North <laughs> and it's further East than Dubai. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like right above the border between, um, I think it's Afghanistan and, Ar- and Iran, um, Anyway, so keep going upwards. Okay. If you just were to keep going upwards until you hit like the um, the latitude of, of Helsinki, so way up there, and they were headed to um, go ski. This was something that they were pretty darn familiar with, and um, and like I said, upon return they would be kind of given. They would have earned the highest certification. They were basically going to become black belts in ski touring in the USSR. Um, and this route was going to be undertaken in February, and it was estimated as a Category 3, which was the most difficult um, route. That was like the most difficult grading it could get, and um, particularly by doing it in February, it gave it that rating because it's a difficult time to traverse. The snow is beginning to melt in some um, areas, and it's just a little bit warmer, and so it's more of a slog, and um, so they were you know, signed up for a pretty, a pretty intense undertaking, but by all accounts, they were very prepared for it and knew exactly what they were doing when they headed in.
1: The group, to their final destination, unfortunately, Um, all of the members of the group were killed. And when they failed to report to their final destination, I think friends and family members started to worry about them and they sent out a, search and rescue mission and they went to the area where the group was and they found the tent the tent had been torn open from the inside and it was covered in snow and they found nine sets of footprints which led down from the tent to a nearby wood about a mile away and in the wood they found the remains of a small fire two of the bodies were found near the fire site and they had been undressed down to their underwear. And the branches on the trees in the woods around the fire had been broken about five meters off the ground, which suggests that they had climbed into the trees to look out and see what was going on. Uh, Investigators found three more bodies between the camp and the fire site, and they had died in positions that suggested that they were trying to return to the tent, You know, maybe walking towards it or whatever. They didn't find the rest of the bodies for a few more months uh, until uh, later, I think when the snow had thawed. Uh, The bodies were buried in snow. They were down in a ravine and some of them were wearing the other's clothing. It was, I think one of the women in particular had the shorts on of one of the men who had been found at the fire pit. Um, So it's pretty sad what happened to them, but the weird thing is it's not really clear why and there's some details that don't really add up here because it's, it's just not really sure what's going on. One of those details is the fact that some of them had very strange injuries. One of the men had major damage to his skull and two of the others had chest fractures. And it was said that the force required to cause the damage that they were seeing in these injuries would have had to have been high, something like that of a car crash. Um, it was strange also that the bodies had no external wounds associated with the fractures in their bones, almost as if the bones had been subjected to a high level of pressure and had, you know,
0: kind of broken internally. Like as opposed to falling off a cliff. I think so, Where right, you'd yeah. Have, like, you'd be bloodied up and have broken broken bones
1: exactly yeah or you know if we think i think a little bit more maliciously if if the damage had been caused by somebody else you know a person or or even you know an animal yeah um the bodies that were found in the ravine had damage to their head and face Uh, one of the women was missing her tongue her eyes part of her lips and part of her skull bone Uh, another was missing his eyes, and then one of the men was missing his eyebrows. Um, It's thought though, at least forensically at the time, they judged that these injuries probably happened post-mortem because the bodies were in a stream and they would have been exposed to the elements at that point. So we don't really know what's going on here. Um, You know, basically what has happened is in the middle of the night, nine people who were sleeping in a tent together all of a sudden decided that they needed to leave the tent and they cut their way out of the tent and they start heading downwards to this wood about a mile away which is not close you know it takes what 15 to 20 minutes to walk a mile
0: yeah I mean especially if you're in snow and barefoot um
1: yeah some of them weren't wearing shoes, which they could tell from the footprints. Right. Some of them, I think, had, like, one sock on. The level of clothing was very disparate. Everyone was just kind of in various stages of undress, presumably because they were just sleeping through the night. Yeah.
0: Something else about, you said, the footprints. Um, the footprints also showed that they were walking and not running. Mm, um, that's yeah. at least what it seemed was, like, they left the tent, but... It it wasn't like a mad dash out of the tent. Um, The way they measured the footprints, it looked like they were kind of more like strolling.
1: Yeah, which is odd given the fact that they would have cut the way out of the tent.
0: Right. Because you
1: think if you're not panicking, why wouldn't you just unzip it? Right. You know, but if an avalanche had swept the tent over why weren't you panicking?
0: Right. It
1: just isn't.
0: And if if an avalanche had come through, we're getting sort of into the theory section, but if an avalanche had come through, then how can we still have their, their footprints just out in the open? They are not completely just, you know, decimated by an avalanche. And one thing um, I forgot to mention when I said, I'm not going to list the names, but actually is one name that I should mention um, person named Yuri Yudin. And the reason um, he is important is because they got up to the town where they kind of last left civilization and he fell ill and did not go. Mm. He didn't make it on the trip. And so a lot of the kind of um, details that we have come from the fact that he survived and was able to say, okay, this was, you know, when they found the bodies, he said, those are not his clothes or like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And so they, they found journals and cameras at the, at the, um, site as well but also that survivor was able to give some information um some pretty crucial insight on clothes and then also just you know what they were thinking what they were um you know an, an insider's look kind of into the group even though he wasn't on that trip he was friends with all these people um mm-hmm. and um because he didn't go he um wasn't there to be fall whatever you know to fall prey to whatever it is that happened to these people mm-hmm so that's a pretty basic setup, and I think that's one thing that intrigues me so much is we really, we have kind of a lot of information and also very little at the same time. So we know where they were, we know what they were up to in general, um, we know quite a bit about how they died, um, at least kind of medically or forensically, but other than that, um, you know, that's a, that's a very short set of facts to, to play with. And so um, for that reason, theories have abounded for years. Um, and this, is, this has been a pretty um well discussed and kind of um investigated incident for the 60 plus years that um, um since that, since it happened. And so I hope all of our listeners, as you've heard this account, um, I hope you've come up with some theories, and um that's kind of what we want to discuss now. So I think there's a few things that just clearly make some sense as to why this would happen. So first of all, um, to flee your tent in a winter camp in north North central Russia, barefoot, something has to be really wrong. I think we can agree, particularly if you are an exceedingly experienced um, mountaineer, somebody not, you know... You hear stories, really unfortunate stories about people who, you know, kind of get themselves lost in a national park or are driving through the the Sierra Nevadas and they're not used to snow and something terrible happens. Um, and they, you know, they're stranded in the snow and they don't have the equipment and they're not prepared. Um, this is not that situation. These are people who um, were overjoyed to spend a week out in this, you know, kind of icy wasteland and um so the fact that some of these things happened really is is puzzling so i think um one of the first ones that i thought when i heard this was like well could it have been an animal like could it have been a bear or something like a bear pokes its head in your tent and you would i could see you cut a hole in the side of the tent and just running for your life but the problem with that and the and um and in addition like really any other person, like whether it's, um, there are some indigenous peoples, natives in that area, um, or even just, you know, somebody followed them up the mountain. But the problem with that is, um, the, the tracks don't bear that out. There's not animal tracks. There's not people tracks. And so it seems that whatever happened that made them run for their lives from this tent, or at least, you know, cut themselves out of the tent and leave its safety, um, wasn't didn't leave tracks in the snow so it probably wasn't a person it probably wasn't an animal and um so a lot of the theories turned to nature that it was something natural and Tyler you'd already mentioned avalanches um and there's also something that I think you can explain to us a little bit um that are called catabatic winds can you <laughs> explain that to us
1: uh yeah I was reading all about catabatic winds knowing nothing about this kind of stuff. I know very little about the weather and atmospheric pressure and physics of meteorology, but this kind of interesting stuff, I wish I knew more about it. Catabatic winds are very rare wind events that occur in cold elevated regions. Rare in this case um, for where they were on the globe. They're not rare in places where the whole area is elevated and flat, like in Greenland or Antarctica. But they would have been rare in this part of Russia. The What happens is cold, dense air gets pulled downward with so much force that the winds around it can reach hurricane-level strength. Like 300-mile-an-hour winds. Very, very violent. So... It might've been that, you know, it would have been extremely rare. I think they're rare to the point that people probably would live their whole lives never even hearing about this kind of thing. Yeah. But you know, this is a rare event that we're, you know, this incident is a very strange thing. So it could have been something strange like that that would explain it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I like that idea. And I also like another, um, kind of natural phenomenon that I'll discuss because it is so sort of strange. um, Some of the facts of of this case that it almost makes you think that this would have had to have been some weird one in a million thing Mm -hmm. to make, to make this make sense. Because it's
1: already a one in a million incident.
0: Right, exactly. Um, So another one, somewhat related to that um, in some ways is um, that I, that, I go back and forth, but this is one of my favorite, um, theories is, um, the idea of infrasound and infrasound is, um, a super low frequency sound. Um, and again, I'm, I'm with Tyler. I'm not going to be able to understand, let alone explain like the Hertz and decibels and pressure and everything of it all, but basically, and, and you may have heard of, um, kind of ideas related to this, but different tones do different things to our bodies. Um, We can perceive them, some of them with our ears and others. Um, You know, if it goes really high, like a dog whistle, we humans can't hear it, but dogs can. Um, But also if uh, a super, super low frequency sound um, can do weird things to your body. And there's like a kind of an urban myth, at least it seems like of, um, Tyler, have you ever heard of the brown sound?
1: I think once I can't remember what it was. Yeah. (laughs) It it rings a bell.
0: Yeah. It's this, uh, it's the idea that there's a certain tone, a certain frequency that if you can play it exactly right and like face it at a person and basically shoot this sound at them, kind of like the idea of an opera singer shattering a a wine Mm -hmm. glass, if they do it just right, um, that will, um, (laughs) if done correctly to a person will cause them to lose control of their bowels whoa. Yeah. So (laughs) it's never been proven and it's, it's mostly theoretical and and not widely believed that that actually can happen, but super low frequency noises do do very weird things to people um, that, that have been um, documented. So, um, and, and one of the, (laughs) one of the things that it does is it um, basically makes you start feeling paranoid. And this is all from the infrasound Wikipedia page, um, which is on its own worth some some um, Googling, but it can make you feel paranoid. It can make you feel a sense of impending doom, oh. which is a really fascinating thing that like a sound can do to a person. <laughs> like I understand maybe it like, you know, messing with your head, giving you a headache, that is something I could be like, oh, okay, I could see. But then it's like, oh, it'll make you feel real scared that you're (laughs) going to die. It doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) But that is a thing that has been observed. Um, It also, um, some of the theories are that it can mess with the pressure in your eyeballs, and can make you start hallucinating. That combined with a sense of dread is one thing that um, some researchers have pointed to as a Um, explanation for certain ghost sightings that that there's this somehow an ultra low sound is being produced in a location and so it makes people literally their vision starts playing tricks on them and they feel terrified just like all at once by standing in a certain spot and so that's kind of an elegant explanation for why you know somebody might have like a like a (laughs) scooby-doo style ghost encounter um and so this can be caused in nature. Typically it's, you know, as you can imagine, like machinery, like the big solar or, um, wind turbine machines that spin. Um, there's been research on those, whether those produce sounds that would, you know, um, have harmful effects on people, but it can happen with, um, with natural elements. Um, for instance, if, if wind comes down a certain, you know, and hits a rock formation in a certain way, And it's not impossible that natural forces could produce it. And there's been some indication that maybe like the canyons and mountain peaks around this area could have done that. And I really like that explanation, whether it's true or not, because it does tick a lot of the boxes for me. Like, so people acting irrationally. So these experienced people who would never step outside a tent with bare feet. That's just absolutely bonkers um, and just cause them to behave in ways that we really can't explain. So I like that theory um, because it does um, offer some, some answers to the questions that are just so, so bizarre. Um, And it leaves
1: no trace, right? Like there's no physical evidence of that happening.
0: Exactly. Um, Which kind of leads to the the other one that you just mentioned, which is um, avalanche, which is a natural phenomenon that obviously could happen in snowy mountains. Um, And, Um, but it it would leave a trace where do you stand on avalanche what do you think about
1: (sighs) the first time I read this article very cursory read through I was just like it's an avalanche come on you gotta be kidding me but I wasn't reading very closely because the details for avalanche I think don't add up as well as they should for example like you already mentioned how are there still footprints there right why are not all of the bodies covered in the snow, I think is another one. Maybe even the idea that they would have been able to get away, like a whole mile away from an avalanche is just a little bit too unlikely. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, if if, if you're running or leaving from a tent so quickly that you cut it from the inside to escape, um, yeah, why would you go a mile away if nothing... Like, either an avalanche is coming for you or it's not, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you could...
1: avalanche. Avalanche could maybe explain um, the pressure injuries that they were talking about. Right. Like, the internal bone fractures. Right. But I don't know. I also think that avalanche would have led to more injuries, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think I agree with that um, because, but again, like the tent was kind of pushed over, but it wasn't like covered in snow Yeah, and there were still Mm -hmm. footprints and like um, the first group of bodies that they found where the fire was located had just like a light dusting of snow on them indicating that they, when Mm -hmm. they perished, there was no, they weren't like covered in snow like the other group was, which um, could have happened in an avalanche or otherwise. Um, because they were down in kind of like a ravine. But
1: yeah. It's interesting to think about the tree branches being broken. If they were climbing up into the trees, presumably looking out, what were they looking for?
0: Yeah. Were they
1: paranoid because of the infrasound, <laughs> you know, paranoia that was in their heads? Or were they thinking an avalanche took over our tent and we can't find it?
0: Right. Uh, yeah. Clear. I think. I think the most common idea, and this makes sense, is that clearly what they would have been looking for was their tent again. But That
1: they were lost, right?
0: That they were lost. I mean, mm-hmm. either, either that or it's some unexplained thing that is there that they're trying to run away from or find or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like it makes sense that they would be looking for the tent. But then that, so how did they get lost? Um, again, experienced kind of mountaineers. How could you get lost that close to your tent, Um, particularly if you, um, you, I mean, you chose to leave the tent. It's not like they were dragged away or something. Yeah, Um, yeah. And it it seems like they walked away. They didn't run. Um, And so that that one also doesn't really mesh well. Like, why would you be looking for the tent when it was that close and you had just left?
1: Well, I I think a mile is quite far. You know, could you still see the tent?
0: I guess that's true. No, I I I don't think you could still see it.
1: Um, and it's nighttime. You know, if you walk a mile in nighttime, like in a paranoid state, that would explain to me like, okay, they they're not keeping track of where they're going. You that's know? a
0: great point. Yeah, it it certainly seems like they didn't they didn't keep track of where they were going for whatever reason because they should have been able to, to get back,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but that's another good point. So I'm, I'm kind of contradicting myself, but a mile in some ways is really close and also really far. Like it takes a long Uh time to walk a mile. And so what could be chasing you or what could compel you to move that far before you would choose to turn back?
1: Right. Another, yeah. Oh, Before, Yeah, because it's, like, 15 to 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. Maybe they were faster. They were all athletic, I guess. But in snow, with no shoes. Right. The nature of, like, how undressed they were also calls into a lot of, like, questions here. Because, sure, they were sleeping at night. You know, I mean, I'd probably want to put on more clothes than they were wearing. (laughs) But... There is actually a phenomenon that happens with, I think, 30% of all hypothermic deaths Uh called paradoxical undressing, which is when your body gets so cold, and there's a part of the brain that regulates temperature, it's thought that that part of the brain starts to feel confused and think that you're too hot, and you'll start taking all your clothes off because you, you can't get cold enough even though your body is actually suffering from hyperthermia, so that's kind of an interesting thing like maybe the temperature dropped so much during the night they all started to have this hypothermic kind of panic and maybe they thought the tent was too hot like we need to get outside immediately or whatever yeah but one counter evidence against that is the fact that some of them were wearing each other's clothes The ones who were found in the ravine seem to have taken the clothes from the ones who were found at the fire pit, which suggests that they were in at least enough of a mental state to realize that they needed to get warm.
0: Yeah, so I agree. First of all, with the hypothermia thing, obviously, if you die out in the in the snow in the Ural Mountains, you're going to experience hypothermia at some point before you die. (laughs) Um, And so, I do think that that can explain some of the behavior, like um like the undressing but the footprints leading away from the tent um some of them were barefoot so they were barefoot when they left so like you said when they have had to inside the tent during the night presumably while they were asleep have become convinced that they were that cold and hypothermia yeah. will do crazy things to people and they'll start behaving irrationally and stuff but that just that's a bit of a leap for me to leave your tent not just i'm gonna i feel hot but barefoot in the snow. Mm -hmm. Um, and in particular, like, I feel like somebody who's this experienced would understand that about hypothermia. I mean, I was taught that as a boy scout, that if you are really cold in the night, like really cold, and then you suddenly all of a sudden feel really warm and like, oh, this cold isn't a big deal anymore. That's actually a very dangerous thing. You, you might've hit that point of hypothermia. Um, so that's not like hidden knowledge. Um, perhaps it wasn't common knowledge in the, in the six in 1959, but I would imagine that these guys, you know, they, they had, they knew what they were doing. And so that one, um, kind of, again, it answers a question in some ways, like they were making all these illogical decisions. Okay. Well, hypothermia can do that. Mm-hmm. But then, but they would have known that and they would have yeah. known like, okay, you don't go walk in the, in the snow with no shoes on.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So um, another one, uh, just to kind of add on a little bit about the avalanche idea. So um, there, is, there is a lot of evidence that does point towards an avalanche. And as a matter of fact, when I sat down to um, kind of put the finishing touches and gather some of the, the details I wanted to have on hand for this episode, um, there actually, as of this week, is a um, kind of a new study that was put out that somebody says they think that they've solved this, and it is an avalanche, and it's a particular form of avalanche. Um, and it's called a slab avalanche. And so a group of researchers is saying that they think that um, it could have been a slab avalanche. It's, that's the, um, the type of avalanche. It's responsible for about 90% of avalanche-related fatalities um, in like, backcountry users. And um, sadly, I was actually reading this as well. This last month or so has been a particularly dangerous um, avalanche season. Huh. And um, I, think, I think I read that like 20 people in the last few weeks have died, which is, is kind of statistically That's higher high. than usually happens. I think three or four people died in Utah last week and then a few died um. in Colorado this week as well. Um, so it's a sad thing. And um, but it can happen. And so, but a, a slab avalanche is one of the more deadly ones. And it basically, um, it's when snow has been deposited or redeposited by wind. So that snow is in a place where it didn't begin. Um, it's not where it fell.
1: Mm.
0: And then um, it's called a slab avalanche because like a, literally a big block or slab of the snow is cut from its surrounding by fractures and kind of falls as a group. Um, and the research, as I, I read a little bit about this kind of new research idea, and it actually came about because this, um, this guy who was involved with the research watched Frozen 2 with his child, <laughs> uh, the movie Frozen 2. And there's a, the animation, there's an avalanche in that movie, and the animation that they used to do it, he was really interested in um, how they kind of digitally recreated such an accurate avalanche. And all of that kind of, and he went and talked to the animators and like the digital people who reproduced it. Anyway, all of that kind of led him to believe that this could have been what happened. Um, But for all of the reasons we've listed, Avalanche doesn't answer a lot of the questions, particularly... why they how they got so far if they thought it was an avalanche and avalanche isn't something that's going to give you a lot of time Mm -hmm. to you know walk a mile and then decide all right let's go back An avalanche is a pretty immediate thing and in addition this area and time of year um, are not avalanche times like um, avalanches are more common um, earlier in the season in this part of the world so like in november avalanche makes more sense than a february avalanche and also the just the area they were in didn't have the peaks and kind of the geography that is typically seen for an avalanche. So there's the, the newest word, kind of the newest um, research out suggests a slab avalanche, but I'm just, I'm still not convinced on that one.
1: Yeah. And it's the footprints. I keep coming back to the footprints.
0: Yeah. Now, one thing that could have happened was, let's say that there was an avalanche that Passed near them, or like huh. they heard rumblings and were like, "Oh, great, and an avalanche is coming," and got spooked. Maybe, but again, you would kind of have to. It's it's one of the contradictions here is it's almost like they thought a lot about what they were doing, and they also didn't think about it at all. They didn't think about it at all because they left barefoot. They cut a hole in the tent rather than just running out of like the yeah, tent. Yeah. But then it seems like they thought about it a lot because they went a whole mile. Um, and then they tried to start a fire. They tried to like work their way back. So they had some time to kind of ponder or like formulate a plan. They also got separated at some point or chose to separate into two groups. So, um, yeah, avalanche raises a lot of as many questions as it answers for me.
1: If you heard an avalanche nearby, wouldn't you just hop out of the tent and take a quick look? You know, you're not going to go for a whole mile. Uh,
0: yeah, and and I mean, could and I I don't know. And these guys were like we've said, kind of experts. But would you know what an avalanche sounded like? I guess you probably would. Yeah, just a I big, don't know. you know, kind of. It's probably just a big, terrifying rumble. But mm. that one, just yeah, it could be certainly, but it doesn't satisfy me completely.
1: By the way, that's a sound that I would prefer not to know what it sounds like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, Cause I've never,
1: I don't care to,
0: <laughs> I totally agree. There's actually products that you can buy like these backpacks that you pull a rip cord and a huge, like basically like a, like a lifeboat inflates on your back so hmm. that if you are out and an avalanche comes towards you, that will help you not get sh- like sluiced to the bottom. It will oh. kind of buoy you up. And that's just a terrifying thing to have to go by. And I don't, yeah that's like that's a bridge too far like a helmet to ride a motorcycle sure yeah this magic backpack that will hopefully lift you out of like a, a, an avalanche no thank you
1: pick a different activity in that case
0: yeah um and of course there's also some theories out um that are a little out there could it be a yeti could it be aliens yeah. um, so there's supernatural elements as well um, and then one that I think um, one can never discount is Soviet meddling. Um, I, I am on record as saying that um, never discount Soviet meddling because how, they were meddlers.
1: And how many episodes have we done now about <laughs> <Soviet> meddling?
0: <laughs> yeah. And that's a, that's probably a reflection of my Wikipedia. that I <laughs> love reading about Soviet meddling.
1: It's but good yeah, stories. I mean, yeah,
0: definitely. So this would have been kind of at the height of the Cold War. So it's um, 1959 um the soviets were you know making an, as many crazy weapons as they could we were making nuclear weapons also we were both working on um like the um so aircraft that couldn't be detected by radar this was kind of the emergence of helicopters so like there was a lot of innovation happening in 19 in that era 1959 we were transitioning from like world war II era technology which was no jets uh, all of the, basically all of the aircraft in World War II would have been propeller p- airplanes. By 59, we're getting into, you know, jet travel and things were just changing. And so one of the thoughts is, um, well, what if the Soviets were doing something weird out there and either by accident terrified these people or like mm. maybe maliciously saw, some, like we we we're going to go straight up test this weird thing on, on the first people we see or something like that Mm -hmm. so that's another thought is like some either some sort of weapon like maybe a an intentional infrasound weapon maybe just like a helicopter with threats or maybe some sort of crazy aircraft that you know was unexplainable to the hikers and terrified them and they thought they were going to be abducted by aliens Um, there's not a lot of concrete theories there but just kind of like the category of this was the Soviet Union in 1959, so maybe some, maybe some weird crap was going on in, in the hills. You know, it was
1: getting spooky. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's sort of like like if somebody says, "Well, you know, the CIA in the 60s, the United you States." You just kind
1: of it's carte blanche. Yeah, yeah. You're like, <laughs> okay,
0: there's not a lot of things I can't picture happening in that. You know, so um, those are essentially the theories and. I go back and forth every time um, about what I think it could be or is. And um, one of my favorite things about this one is kind of like the Voynich manuscript. I really can't decide. And today after our conversation, I, I don't, I don't have a favorite. I don't know what did this. Yeah. And, um, and I kind of, I kind of like the mystery. It's spooky. Very spooky. Do you have a, a pet theory? I Well, you've kind
1: of sold me on infrasound. <laughs> and in sound, you know it's kind of spooky itself, even as an answer, it's still very serious, right. but I don't know i mean this is this is a weird one, and yeah. it's a, it's a sad one too, like it would be nice you know even if we just had a few more details about how these people died but I think that's the sad part is you can imagine this happening to yourself and what what's the deal, you guys? why'd you leave the tent? I just want to know.
0: Yeah. yeah. We just want to know. And yeah, it's a, a young group of, you know, kind of active people yeah, like strapping them. young
1: people. They had their whole lives ahead of them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The same. And and we just, and we just don't know. Um, one other thing I've thought about this, and I don't think that this necessarily is going to give any huge insight into what happened to them. But one thing I do think about these things where there's just these weird scenarios and we say, all of this makes sense, but why did they do this? Or why did they do that? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking about this today. So today I'm working from home right now and um, I've been sitting all day. So my back kind of hurt. So I laid down on the floor on my back and was like kind of propping my laptop above me. And this is going to sound so strange, but that's the point. I was laying there next to my chair, like the folding chair that I used. And I was like rocking the folding chair with my arm, just kind of tipping it back and forth. And I was like, I wonder if I could balance this folding chair (laughs) on my nose. And so I tipped it back and I like, it was, so it was basically like, you know, if I wasn't there, it would just be flat on the floor with its legs. Like, you know, two legs flat on the ground and two legs up in the air. And I just like tipped it back and balanced it on my nose. Just did this weird, weird thing that if anybody had been watching me through my window, <laughs> would have been like, what the hell is racing on the floor? Like it just oh. wouldn't have made any sense. And I couldn't really explain it. I would have just been like, Uh, I wanted to see if I could balance this thing.
1: (laughs) Is it a low frequency sound that's making his brain do this kind of behavior? (laughs) Right.
0: And so I don't think something that simple could explain like why they ran out of their their feet. But I do think that a lot of times we're like, well, clearly this is how people behave. But I think we can all think of things we've done, you know, this week it's just like, oh, yeah, if anybody asked me why I did that, I wouldn't be able to explain it. Like, I talk to myself sometimes. I will just randomly, like, say a word out loud that I'm thinking about. And it just it, – an, an outsider would be like, oh, th- this is such a significant – like, why was he singing or why was he ta- – who was he talking to? Was mm-hmm. he talking on speakerphone? And it's like, no, sometimes people just do <laughs> weird stuff. And they, you know, like or, – or, for instance, um, have you ever, like – you park your car and you're like, okay, I'm going to walk up to this store. And then you're like, Oh no, I actually, I think I want to. And so you head back to your car and then you're like, no, no, no. Yeah. And you turn back around. <laughs> and like, again, if somebody was watching you, they'd be like, what strange force what is, is compelling him? <laughs> because, and, and it'd be so easy for two ding-dongs on a podcast to be like, look, you you want to go to CVS, you get out of the car, you close the door, you walk into CVS and you buy your, uh, you buy your band-aids, you know? But <laughs> it's just not always that simple. And I think about that a lot. Like if we could rewind back to um, the Voynich manuscript or this um, and just a lot of things and you'd say, so what about this weird detail? You might just kind of a hand in the cookie jar moment, just like, oh yeah, we can't really explain that. Like, like for instance, the cut in the tent, what if, um, like, what if somebody had tripped and, you know, like something just... Very mundane, but that but that we don't really give. What if somebody was carrying their you know little pocket knife and they tripped and they cut a big hole in the tent and that's what caused all. Yeah,
1: things? it was t- like a total accident. Don't we read yeah. so much importance into those little details because they're the spookiest ones.
0: Yeah. Or or like the clothes switching. It's like, well, did how did they get each other's clothes? Well, maybe, maybe somebody's boots were bothering them. So they, you know, somebody was like, I could probably switch boots because my feet are really, you know, there's just, (laughs) there could be explanations for these things. And people are just kind of hard to explain in any circumstance. And then when you take away all context, and all you have left is kind of this, these tragic little factoids. Um, you're left often with a mystery that just probably will never be explained. Thanks for listening. Before we end, I wanted to add a few notes. First, there are sources that indicate that one of the hiker's clothing had detectable amounts of radiation on it, which only adds fuel to my Soviet meddling fire, Next, it is possible that much clearer information existed that explained this whole affair, but it was simply suppressed by the Soviet government. Which wouldn't be that surprising considering the secrecy and lack of public access to certain information that characterized much of the history of Soviet news and public relations. But if there was an innocent or simple explanation, why would the government want to cover it up? Finally, it's worth mentioning that although we brushed off the UFO theory quite readily, A group of hikers about 30 miles away from the Dyatlov site reported seeing strange orange spheres in the night sky on the night of the deaths. Also, Lev Ivanov, who led the official inquest in 1959, admitted 30 years later and right after the fall of the Soviet Union that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident and that his team reported that they had seen flying spheres and he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss that claim. So perhaps the truth is out there somewhere. Thank you for listening. We love making these episodes, and our listeners motivate us to keep recording. If you want to send us a message, suggest an episode topic, or just say hi, check out at Pod on Twitter. Or on Instagram, check out at race and Tyler or you can email us at race and tyler at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.